All right, you were created for community. You know that. It's not a nicety, it's a necessity. You know this about your kids, right? Because when your kids become adolescents and teenagers, like one of the main things they try to figure out for like the next decade or two of their life is who are gonna be my friends, right? When you leave family, you gotta find friends. And you know this too, that your friends are gonna determine the quality and direction of your life. And when people come to church, guess what? They don't want a friendly church. They want friends at church. And we wanna help you find friends at church and you'll do that through our community groups. I want you to know this. We got a lot of guests here today. Here's what I want you to know we are not a church with community groups we are a church of community groups you go that sounds nuanced well it's actually really important here's what this means we didn't take this idea of community groups which is these groups of 10 to 20 people that meet in homes we didn't duct tape it onto the life of our church in fact this is neat you may not know this you probably don't know this how would you know this Uh, before we had a corporate gathering so we launched kind of a corporate sunday services uh at goler ame zion in september of 2016. but before we launched these corporate gatherings we'd been meeting for three months as a launch team in community groups so here's what i want you to know we had eight of them We have had community groups even before we had corporate gatherings. And why are they so important? Why do we do sermon-based guided discussions? Do we think the sermons are that good? No, we don't, okay? The reason we do that is because it creates alignment. Like last week, if you were here and then you were in a group, everybody in our church was talking about the same thing, dysfunctional families in the providence of God. And not only that, like the number one thing you need in your life is help applying the Bible that you already know, right? You don't need a lot more Bible information. We'll give it to you. But the problem with the average Christian is your brain is massive and your hands and your heart are small. And the way that we fix that problem or try to fix that problem is get everybody in community groups. And so uh, here's what we're trying to show you in that video, guys. We don't have enough community groups right now for the people in our church. Uh, Churches, I don't want to get, this is more of a family conversation. So if you're new, just, I'll get back to you in a second, okay? This is for kind of two cities church, uh, people who call it two cities home. Our church has two lids right now. That are, that are affecting our ability to grow numerically, spiritually, and all the different ways we wanna grow. And the number one lid is obvious. I mean, look around, it's this building. That lid's being removed, we hope, around Christmas time, we're gonna be able to get a new building. The second lid is community groups. Just to keep up with the current growth that we're experiencing before we get in the new building, we need to launch 36 groups in the next year. That's a lot. So why? So every once in a while, we just we don't do this often, but we get up in front of the entire church, that's what I'm doing today, and we're saying, could you help us launch a new group? Here's how groups start. We don't, we don't split groups. And, and the way that we multiply groups, this is, please understand this philosophically, the way that we multiply groups is by multiplying leaders. You heard it in that video. And maybe one, when you saw that video, your wife nudged you or you nudged your wife or something like that and said, we could maybe do this. Here's how a new group starts. A leader leaves and starts a new group. And here's the best way a new group starts. Two couples who are in a great group and love each other. One says, I'll be the leader. One couple says, we'll be the leader. The other says, we'll be the host. And it makes up a great marriage that can handle all the crazy kids of a community group, okay? (laughs) And so what we're praying for is we're just praying that some of you would step out, you would hear this need. And and if you do, you can reach out to Nathan Millicent and we are gonna walk with you through this process to make sure you're ready. So that's the word to those of you who could lead. Uh, The other word is um, some of you are, you've gone to a weekend or you've not yet gotten a group. And we're gonna do a group connect August 27th. I think it's behind me. And uh, we genuinely, we cannot care for you. We cannot disciple you. We cannot invest in you like we would like to if you're not in a community group. For example, here's what happens every once in a while. Something terrible happens in one of your lives and then you call the office. And that's the international sign you're not in a group. If someone is calling our office to tell us bad news, I I am 100% sure they're not in a community group. And guess what? We're still gonna come to the hospital, but we're gonna be looking up your name on the way because we won't know you like you can be known. But when trials and tragedy come, what you need is people who know and love God and people who know and love you. And you're gonna find that here in our community groups. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna dive into Genesis 39. Lord, I'm praying for two types of people this morning. I'm praying for some leaders who could leave, who could say a gospel goodbye. When I see that video, I know how much Spencer and Ryan and David love each other. And in some ways they would probably rather still be in group together, but they each left and they started new groups, Lord. And I pray that we would see multiplication as a blessing. The first time in the Bible we're told to multiply, it's not a command, it's a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply, Lord. I pray that people would see the blessing in their life of being able to multiply all the things you've given them. And I pray for another type of person who they need to take their next step. They've gone to the weekender, but they've not yet got connected to community. I pray they would fight for it. I pray they would find the right night. 
I pray they would prioritize it in their schedule. I pray even families with really young kids, the, the, the greatest need of parents with young kids is for those parents to be in healthy, godly relationships where they can be invested in, so they can be the husband, wife, mom, and dad they need to be. Would you strengthen our church, or would you remove this lid? Would you grow more than 36 new community group leaders in the next 12 months? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, I am excited to talk to you about what I'm gonna to talk to you about today. And, and I really believe that what I'm gonna show you from Genesis 39, you can type to or turn to there. I think this could change your life. I, I know that sounds dramatic, okay? But I guess in one sense, any biblical teaching from scripture that hopefully I give you, if applied, it could change your life. But I mean, this can change your life today. This can save you from an enormous amount of heartbreak, what I'm gonna teach you today. Uh, this can help you have less regrets in your life. This can help you not wreck or shipwreck your faith or your marriage. What am I talking about? Temptation, right? Don't act like you're not tempted. I know we're in church, we're all tempted, okay? Temptation is a universal experience. You hear that guy who he prayed the prayer, Lord, lead me not into temptation because I can find it all by myself, okay? That's us. <clears throat> Guys, and temptation's serious, we're gonna laugh some today, but temptation's serious because it has taken down some incredible men and women. And today we're particularly gonna talk about sexual temptation. You know who sexual temptation took down? The wisest man in the Bible, Solomon. You know who else sexual temptation took down? The strongest man in the Bible, Samson. You know who else sexual temptation took down? The most spiritually devoted man in the Bible, David. So don't think you're gonna be safe. Okay, we've gotta figure out how to deal, this, deal with this. And temptation is like, some of you are tempted to, you know, you're materialistic and you're consumeristic and you're tempted to spend more than you have. And some of you are tempted, you're more prone to addiction and substance abuse. And some of you are more tempted to sexual sin and okay. But all temptation really falls into three categories. You know this, the temptation to have, the temptation to be, the temptation to feel, that's it. Those are the temptations Adam and Eve experienced. Those are the temptations Jesus experienced. You could say it a different way, possessions, power, pleasure sex, status, salary, they're never going away. You're always going to have them, so we need to see how to fight them. Now, here's the great thing about Joseph. He is a model Christian. Um, I told you last week, there's a couple of things said about him early in his life, nothing negative said about him from now on. In fact, he's going to be the wise statesman. We'll get there next week. He's the wise statesman. He's the um, great steward of God's resources. That's pretty awesome. But today, before he's those two things, he's the man who knows how to say no to the adulterous woman. See what Joseph, so a lot of people consider the story of Joseph, this is interesting, the wisdom literature of the Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch written by Moses are the first five books of the Bible. We don't get Proverbs until much later, but we need wisdom now. And so the way the Bible often works is you get something first in story and then later you get it in principle. So here we get it in story. I mean, who's Joseph? Joseph is the person who knows how to say no to the adulterous woman. So we need to pick up this story. Turn with me to chapter 39. We're gonna look here at verses one, just to start. It says this, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, picking up on the last chapter, 37. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, so we got this guy gets a long description. The captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down here. Now, I've told you this before, but the main theme in the whole book of, or the story of Joseph is providence. And so I won't do this every time, but let's just take one moment right now to do this. We need to see the providence in Potiphar picking Joseph. If Potiphar doesn't pick Joseph, he doesn't get to Pharaoh's house, he doesn't interpret the dream, Israel isn't saved, and Jesus can't come. It's like, wow, all of this down to one decision of who's going to be my slave. So that's very interesting. He ends up in Potiphar's house, which he's probably not super excited about. I mean, we know where things are gonna, he's like, I'd rather be like with nobody who's not got a lot of power and couldn't really hurt me, but no, he ends up in Potiphar's house. Uh, the second thing I want you to notice is Potiphar is called an officer. Now that Hebrew word can be translated officer or, and a lot of people think it should be translated this way, eunuch. You're like, this story just got a lot more interesting. You're like, maybe I understand. Doesn't mean it was right. Maybe I understand why Potiphar's wife was so desperate. It's a very interesting story. I want you to pick this up here. So let's, let's look here. It says this. Um, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, Potiphar, an officer, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, we're back in verse one again, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now, what I want you to see today with temptation is almost all of Joseph's temptation is going to happen at work. 
And you need to know this about your life. Some of your temptation, maybe a lot of your temptation is gonna happen at work. It happens different places, right? There is temptation at your home when you're alone. There's temptation when you travel. There's temptation on vacation. You're gonna find in your life that you'll find temptation in certain people. You're like, I can't be around him or her or my old friends or my drinking buddies or the country club guys. Like, I, can't, I can't be around them. Because those people, I'm tempted there, or that sometimes there are certain places. And for some reason, work is a place of massive temptation, especially today. And why is that? Well, I'll try to explain this to us. It's because men and women who are not related to each other, working together is 75 years old. Men and women working together is ancient. It's as ancient as Adam and Eve, subdue and have dominion. And, and husbands and wives working together, you know, and aunts and uncles and family members and daughters and fathers and sons and mothers and all of that and work for thousands of years. But good looking girl and good looking guy who are married to different people but work together 50 hours a week is new. And we're not doing well with it. It's like, what is the Me Too movement? What is sexual harassment? What is, what is all of this? It's like, you know, I, I gave this message obviously last night. I had two different people from the medical community come up to me and go, this is a huge issue in medicine. And they said, it's a huge issue for some reason in the surgery rooms. It's like, well, I wonder why. It's like, well, because many of the things that make a good relationship, a good romantic relationship and a good marriage are the same exact things that make for a good work environment. I trust you. What we're doing is exciting. We're setting goals. We're celebrating. And if we don't have boundaries and barriers, we're traveling together and we're eating together all the time, right? And then you know what happens at work, right? Well, the, husband, the, 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 well, the guy says, you know, this is really crazy at work and my wife doesn't understand. And then the woman says something foolish like, yeah, and my husband doesn't understand. And that's the beginning of a lot of trouble. And so Joseph's temptations happen at work. And you have to realize that some of you, some of your greatest temptations are going to be at work. And the worse things are at home, the more you're gonna go to work. So it's, it's, it's this terrible cycle that happens with people. So we gotta see what happens with Joseph. Let's continue on. Verse three, his master, oh, I'm sorry, verse two, the Lord was with Joseph and he became success, a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So this chapter is bookended, I'll show you this at the end, with the phrase, God was with him. Now this, this sounds, you know, we think, oh, of course that's important, but it's important because he's alone and he's apart from his family. And we're all gonna have this moment. Most of us have it for the first time when we go to college and you just feel like I'm alone. I may be going to some university with 15,000 people, but I'm alone. Or you feel that the first time you get that great job and you end up in some big city and there's 5 million people, but you're alone and you're apart from your family. And what you have to remember when you're alone is that God is with you. And theologians talk about something called the simplicity of God. What is that? The simplicity of God basically says, wherever God is, all of God is there. <laughs> That's what it says. So when it says God is with him, it means all of the attributes, all of the characteristics, all of the personality of God is with Joseph. And look what happens. It says, the Lord was with Joseph, he became a successful man. So part of what you have to ask is, what is the favor of God on your life? What is the blessing of God in your life? Because Joseph had the favor and blessing of God in his life. And we can't just say it is to be successful, although it's defined that way there. So I think one of the things, as I think about what is God's favor, what is God's blessing, what is God's anointing on your life? You can think of it two ways. I think you can think of it as fruitfulness and fellowship. It's fruitfulness in the sense that I believe that if the favor of God is on your life and the blessing of God is on your life, that across time, not maybe, not overnight, but over time, your life is gonna be fruitful. Fruitful in character, fruitful in impact on others. And you're going to have deep fellowship with God. This is what's happened with Joseph. It happens so much, it says his boss noticed. Look, verse three, his master saw that the Lord was with him. And I don't know how he saw, I mean, Potiphar's not a Christian. I don't know if he could even articulate this, right? So sometimes an unbeliever can see something about you, know it's different, but not know what it is and not know how to communicate it. Here's what it says. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. What does it look like to have the favor of God in your life? Can other people see the favor of God in your life? I think, I think here's what it means. I, I don't know how to flesh this out for you. I think this is what it means. You need to live a better life than your non-Christian coworkers. You need to live a better life than your non-Christian family members. Your life, what does that mean? It can't be about the American dream. It can't be about you, please, not your next vacation and your new hobby, please, no. It can't be about you know individual self-expression. It has to be about something so, all we have to give the world is I'm going to live a better life and I'm going to tell a better story. And my story is gonna be about God and my story is gonna be about a savior who's, who's you know, better than my sin and bigger than my suffering. And, and so that's what he does and the man sees this. It says this, so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, verse four, 
And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So we tend to read verses one through four and we're like, man, that was fast. I can't believe Joseph gets to Egypt and all of a sudden he's number two to Potiphar. It's like, well, that's not actually how it worked. If you put the whole timeline together, which we begin to get the timeline when he gets to Pharaoh's palace, but the timeline lets us know that he's, it's been about a decade that he's been working for Potiphar. So think about this, he gets to Egypt and there's one problem with being in Egypt, he can't speak Egyptian. So he has to learn Egyptian. And we don't, again, we don't get all this whole story, but he, he doesn't start out, you know, nobody starts out being number two in command. He starts out taking out the trash and, you know, being the dishwasher and cleaning the toilets and, you know, and, 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 and reporting to somebody else. And here's, I think, what I want you to understand. How, how do you rise? I mean, this is another sermon on work, but a lot of people need help with this. How do you rise in a company, in an industry, in an organization? You find some job to do and some person to obey, and you do that. And how many people, they don't want to do that, right? How many young people, it's like, you know, I don't want to, you know, why are people unemployed? Well, that's a long answer. But one of the reasons people are unemployed is they, they think they can get jobs that are way above them. And they're too prideful and they're too arrogant to take their spot at the bottom of a hierarchy and say, this is what I have to do. I have to make this salary. I have to have this little vacation. I have to report to this person. I have to do this type of menial work. It's like, well, you know, I heard a story, John Maxwell, some of you know him, he's a great Christian leader in his 70s now. He said he was speaking at some massive event and someone came up to him afterwards and said, I want to do what you do. And he said, I looked at him and I said, do you want to do what I did? <laughs> too often people want to do what you do, but they don't want to did what you did. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, what we see with Joseph is, he, we don't know how it happens, but he rises his way up slowly to being second in command. It says this, from that time on, he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Joseph teaches us an important principle that you need to know no matter where you are. You don't have to be somewhere else to be blessed. How many people feel like that? You, it's, we feel like this in every stage of our life. Like, ah, when I get out of my parents' house, I'll be blessed. When I get out of college, I'll be blessed. When I get my first job, I'll be blessed. When I finally get married, I'll be blessed. When we have kids, I'll be blessed. When our kids leave, we'll really be blessed, right? <laughs> and instead of saying, okay, no, no, wherever I am, I want to be all there and God can bless me exactly where we are. Now, there's two other principles here in blessing because this word bless shows up a lot. There's two interesting things here. Number one, Joseph saw himself as being blessed to be a blessing. Every time God blesses you, it's often for somebody else, not for you. And so often we're trying to be a cul-de-sac for blessing instead of a conduit or a catalyst for blessing. But then there's another deeper thing that will keep you humble. Sometimes you don't know why God's blessing you. Like, why did God bless Potiphar? God blessed Potiphar not because of Potiphar. God blessed Potiphar because of Joseph. I genuinely think that's the right way to think about your life. The right way to think about your life, if you're being blessed in any area, is do not assume it's because of you. It'll keep you very humble. You're like, who knows if God's not blessing you because of your spouse? Who knows if God's not blessing you because of your parents' prayers? Who, who knows why God's blessing you? I mean, when I think about our church, I mean, I think, I mean, I think most people say it, at some level, it feels like we've been blessed, and I don't, I'm not exactly sure why. And I certainly don't think it has anything to do with me. And, I, and I, I've had the thought before, I'm like, you know, Pastor Dave, some of you know, he's one of our pastors here. His parents, godly, Dad's a pastor in Pennsylvania. They prayed for him and they still pray for him daily. And I've wondered, are we reaping the prayers and the blessing of somebody in Pittsburgh who's been praying for 38 years? Who knows? The right way to think about blessing is it may have nothing to do with me and it's not for me. And that will, that will let you be unbelievably blessed and not become prideful or arrogant. And the best homes are homes in which everybody says, what would it look like for me to be a blessing to this person? And if that person's rightly oriented, then they say, well, that was great. Maybe I'm blessed. To be. And, and then the, it's the most exciting way to live. Okay, so it's all going well for Joseph. This is how it works usually. He, he's number two, everything's happening. He's number two in command. And then look here. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, verse six. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So it's interesting, I was, I was talking to a guy recently who's, he's not in our city anymore, but he's a very high level executive, super high level at all these big companies. And we were just talking about his job and what he's done and how he got to where he is. And he, he told me this, and it was just providential that I'm not teaching you on this. But he said, Kyle, every job I've ever took, I've had one thought, how do I make my boss's life easier? Instead of being jealous of your boss, instead of being resentful of your boss, instead of wishing you had your boss's job, 
What if you oriented yourself, it seems like Joseph did with Potiphar's, how can I make his life as easy as possible? And you can see now Potiphar has rich people problems. You see that? He doesn't know where he's gonna eat his next meal. That's what he's deciding. What, you know, where are we going for happy hour? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the definition of a rich person's problem. I don't know. I've got a lot of options for my next meal. So we're at the height of Joseph's life so far. Maybe he's starting to think my dreams are coming true. Now, now you gotta see this. <clears throat> Continue verse six. Now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. Now, some of you won't understand this, so I'm gonna have to explain. Some of you don't understand, like I do, the temptations of being very good looking, okay? <laughs> Why are you laughing? No. Um, <laughs> we're told that Joseph is very, very good looking. He is, um, the, the words there in the Hebrew are, he is, is both, he you know, takes his vitamins and does his push-ups, you know, like he's, he's in great shape, and he's also very good looking. Now. Here's what we need to talk about. Sometimes Christians can try to be more spiritual than the Bible is. And we say things like, internal beauty is all that matters. It's like, well, it is the most important thing. But the Bible talks a lot about physical beauty as well. And in fact, there's lots of women in the Bible that were told they're very, very beautiful. We're only told four guys are good looking in the Bible. I don't know what this says about us guys, okay? <laughs> we're told Absalom is very good looking. That's David's son. We're told that David is very good looking. We're told that Joseph is very good looking. And we're told that King Saul was very tall and handsome. Only four guys. Here's what I wanna talk about just for a minute is, is physical and therefore connected to that sexual attraction. Uh, we, we know that Potiphar, well, we don't know, but we assume that Potiphar's wife, who we're gonna meet in a minute, is also very good looking. How do we know that? Because high status men in general are married to very good looking women. Like, have you ever seen a guy and he's with a, a woman that's way out of his league? What do you think? You, you never think he must have a great personality. You think, what does he do and how much does he make? <clears throat> um, so they're, they're both very, very good looking. Joseph's young, we don't know how old she is, but here's, here's like, a, I, this is a real thing. And, and you, you, you know, you, maybe you just be honest with yourself about this, but maybe with a close friend or something like that. You need to be honest, is there anyone in your life who is not your spouse who you're attracted to? Because attraction is very, very powerful. And what you'll, you'll find is people are, you'll find somebody in your life and they're, you're very, very attracted to them. And if you're not, and you won't even know sometimes why and all the reasons why. And if you're not careful and if you're willfully blind, you'll find yourself putting yourself in environments to be around this person and that's not a good idea. And one of the best things you can do is you can just, if you could just tell one person, hey, there's this lady at work or there's this guy, he's my boss. And if you'll say it out loud, I promise, its power will begin to break as soon as you can say it out loud. But we've all seen this, right? This is the story. You've ever seen some guy and his secretary is way, way too good looking and everybody's nervous. It's like, what? this doesn't, I mean, I'm sure he's a great guy, but I just feel uncomfortable with how good looking this person is and this person, and I'm worried about how much time they spend alone together and they travel together. We need to pay attention to these things because you often have these gut feelings and then later you're like, I thought that I didn't say it. So we have this attraction. Now, now I want you to see what happens here. Verse seven, and after a time, let's stop there. When, when is this time? After Joseph has arisen, he's on a mountaintop. There are certain temptations that come every day. We call those besetting sins. There are certain temptations that happen in the valley. You know, the, you, more of the substance abuse stuff happens in the valley. I'm just so sad and I'm just so hurt and I just wanna feel. But a lot of the sexual temptations happen at the mountaintops. And there's a couple reasons for that. Reason number one is when you're on the mountaintop, your guard is down and your pride is up. And so you're very, very tempted. There's another reason, this is interesting. Why is it, if you go in your mind and you think through CEOs or pastors or politicians or family members that fall, you'll, you'll have the same thought if you watch their life. They fell when they were at the top. And you go, why? It's very spiritual. Satan is patient. And he's waiting till he can bring the greatest reproach on the name of Christ. And then he lets that temptation be known. And then he lets that sin be noticed. So it says this, He's successful, watch out when you're successful. <clears throat> after, and after a time, his master's wife 
This is Potiphar's wife. Cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. This is the first episode of Desperate Housewives, okay? <laughs> I've never seen that show, but it's interesting. It is interesting to me that I think that show went several seasons long. <clears throat> Don't tell me there aren't women like that. You know, in the same way Mean Girls it was a, a, a movie that became a Broadway show because it's real. In the same way, for a show to go six, seven seasons long and to be a cultural phenomenon, it's like there are desperate housewives, for sure. What we see, what we see with Potiphar's wife is, I want us to learn a couple things about temptation. The first thing, and you know this about temptation, is that temptation speaks to you. That's what it does. I mean, it comes first maybe as a feeling. I mean, it, it, temptation always attacks your emotions. That's for sure, and your feelings. But the second thing that it does in attacking your emotions is it will make arguments toward you. And you know this, like the reason that you keep giving into the same temptation, even though you journal about it, like even though you told God you'd never do it again, even though you're not even sure, like maybe you recommitted your life to Christ, you're not sure, you got in some desperate moments and you said, I will never. And then you do it again. And it doesn't happen in a moment, it happens with an argument. Normally what happens is like, you know, you're broken into two, sometimes three different people internally. It's a weird experience. And the best part of you, and hopefully that's a lot of you, but sometimes it's not a lot of you. By the way, you can't get, it's too late to get ready for temptation when you're in temptation. Okay, so you wanna strengthen yourself beforehand. But what happens a lot of times is like the best part of you is like, I shouldn't do this. I don't wanna sin against God. And you say all these kind of things and you mean it. And then there's another part of you. Is it Satan? Is it the flesh? Is it whatever? And it always says the, basically the same things. By the way, we find the number one reason people give in to temptation, they did a nationwide study, not with Christians. Why do you give in and do things you know are wrong? I need an escape. That's what people do, escape. And you'll hear some version of, it's usually something like this, you deserve this. You know, and then and, and if you're, it depends on how resentful you are. If you're resentful, you know, your wife put on all that weight. Your husband travels way too much. I mean, no one can handle taking care of three kids like this all the time. You need to drink too much. How else are you gonna cope with all of these things? You know, Joseph had a lot of excuses. Joseph's tempted, he could have said, you know what, my brothers abuse me. People play the victim card all the time. My brothers abuse me, my, you know, my mom died when I was six. I'm a slave. He could have said something like, we'd probably say to ourselves, like, I'm a young man. I have desires and I have urges and I'm a slave and the chance that I'm getting married is zero. And, and another opportunity like this may never come knocking at my door again. And, and then all the other lies we believe too, of nobody will find out and it won't make a difference and it won't corrupt my character. And, and somehow in an amazing ability, Joseph says, no, look what he does in verse eight. In verse eight, here's what he says, but he refused. And he said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. Notice also temptation always wants that which is forbidden. The only temptation for David was the one thing, or for Joseph was the one thing he couldn't have. And this is, you need to know this, lust wants what is forbidden. And the reason why people get in, and you know this about yourself, the reason that you can get in dark holes sometimes and you start going, how did I start using this stuff? How did I start going here? How did I start looking at that? What happens is once you've crossed the line with temptation, temptation only says three things to you, more, better, different. And so the temptation always needs novelty. And so you start looking at things you should, could never imagine you have been looking at. But the reason is you cross the line and you need something more and more and more forbidden. So I wanna show you in that passage, right, that we just read four things Joseph does that I think genuinely, this is so practical, this can help you with temptation. And you're gonna need it, and I need it. Here's the first thing. Joseph is grateful for all that he has. Did you notice that? He just starts saying all the things that God's done in his life. He's really grateful to be second in command. He's really grateful for all that Potiphar's allow him to do and have. See, a lot of people, when they struggle with sin, and see if this isn't true in your life, you, you normally think that there's like one thing you struggle with. It's different for everyone. Everyone's like, oh, I'm, you know, I just spend too much. If I didn't spend too much, I'd be a great person, you know? I just drink too much. If I didn't drink too much, the rest of my life's pretty organized. The Bible says actually the number one problem with somebody who spends too much or drinks too much or looks at things that they shouldn't is not that they spend too much and drink too much and look at things that they shouldn't. It's that they don't have a grateful heart. 
It's like, yikes, that's the root problem. And we know that from Romans 1, because Romans 1 talks about idolatry and false worship. At the beginning, it says, they did not acknowledge God, and they were not grateful. So like, this is, this is so, I don't know anything maybe more practical that I'd say to you today, then the moment you start feeling tempted, you need to start being grateful. And you, you could get super spiritual and super theological, and you could say, Lord, I'm thankful for the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But you may just need to say, Lord, I am thankful for pizza. Thank you, Lord. I, I'm, I'm thankful for a warm home on a cold day. I'm thankful for a spouse. I'm thankful for my kid. I'm thankful for a job. I'm thankful for my health. You watch the effect. It is impossible for sin to dwell in an actively thankful heart. I've got a friend, he says, when he starts feeling tempted, he goes, Kyle, I just start blessing the Lord. That's what he says. He says, whenever it is, I just say, Lord, you are with me. Lord, you are a great God. Lord, you created the world. Lord, you made me. Lord, we're gonna be in heaven together. He just starts turning his praise upward to God and being thankful. The first thing is being thankful. The second thing is counting the downside. I read a book recently and I recommend it to you. It's a, not a Christian book, but it's a good business book. It's called The Road Less Stupid. Some of you go, I need, some of you go, I need that book. <laughs> um, it's a great little short, well, it's got like 40 or 50 chapters in it. They're really short. And there's a lot of helpful, what I'd call common grace principles. Very successful business guy writes the book. I don't think he's a Christian. Anyway, he says, um, the problem in business, he said, how do people make stupid decisions in business? He says, here's what they do. He says, they count, because they, every business guy or gal does this, they, they count the upside and then they count the downside. But he says, well, here's what they don't do. They don't, they're not, they don't have an honest conversation with themselves to go, can I live with the downside if it happens? When 08 hit, when all these things happen, when the real estate, this, when all that happens, he says, the best guys and gals in the industry, they saw it coming or they saw it as a potential. And they thought, well, I could live with it. They couldn't live with it. And you wanna be honest with yourself. Okay, be honest with you. What's, what's the upside of giving into this temptation? It's always the same. Immediate, impulsive, cheap, instant pleasure. You know, and then what's the downside? It's like, well, especially, especially if it gets a hold of your life and the worst parts of you are manifested in it. And then you have to have a, like, and I, I really think this takes a while. Like, I think you need to, you know, tell your husband or wife if you're married, can I have a couple hours tonight or I'm gonna get up early or can I get away for half a day because I need to think about these things. Because what you wanna do is you, you, wanna, you wanna scare yourself uh, because you, you need something to run toward and something to run away from. So you wanna scare yourself and you'd say, okay, if the worst parts of me were manifested and I committed adultery, what, what could happen? Well, I could end up in divorce court for two and a half years. Somebody else could raise my kids. I'm gonna have to walk into my kid's bedroom one night before they go to sleep and tell them what I did. I'm gonna lose trust. It's gonna be part of my legacy. My spouse may get remarried and raise, my kids may be raised by somebody else and now I see them half the time. And then you have to, you have to count, you have to think about all this. And then you have to go, I, I, okay, that's horrible. And to experience pleasure for a few minutes doesn't feel worth it. So you have to know the upside, be honest, oh, here's why I'm doing this. Know the downside and then be honest with yourself and none of us wanna live with the downsides. The third thing he does is he calls sin what it is. He says, how can I do, here, look at this. I think it's verse nine. Yeah, verse nine. How can I do this great wickedness? When's the last time you thought you did anything wicked? We don't even use that word anymore. <clears throat> how can I do this great wickedness in sin against God? So it, you'll see this, right? Every time like a CEO or a politician has some kind of moral failure, right? Then he has to address the public. What does he say? Well, the least he has, the least possible. It's, it's the same, it's like I could write it for him. Here, use this word, we all make mistakes. Here, use this word, missteps. Here, use this word, indiscretion, you know. Um, oh, this is a good one, lapse in judgment. <laughs> you know, it's like we, we have all these things and, and I understand why they're trying to do that and all that and cover their image and I get all that. But very rarely will we just talk about sin and call it sin. We call adultery affairs. We call getting drunk, having a good time. We call pornography, adult entertainment. We euphemistically name everything. And in your own life, you can watch this. You'll do things you know are wrong and you'll call them something else so your own conscience doesn't condemn you as much. And so the, 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 where healing comes in is you, sometimes you just need to have a conversation with yourself and you need to go, I am looking at pornography. I am a drunkard. 
whatever it is. I am a materialistic, selfish person. It's like, all right, the honesty is there so the healing can begin. So he, he you know, and, and you need to call what you're tempted to do what it is. Just say, this is what this is. This is not just two coworkers hanging out, sharing their feelings. This is an, you know, this is an emotional affair. You need to call it what it is. The, the fourth thing, this is helpful, is Joseph is the first person in the story of Joseph to name God. Like, now God's been talked about. God's been talked about a lot. But, but Joseph is the first human character in the story to say God's name. He said, how can I do this and sin against God? I think here's the principle. Part of how you fight sin is by being a public Christian. You identify publicly with Jesus Christ, and it makes it harder for you to sin in environments where you do that. You know, if at work only you and Jesus know you're a Christian, it's gonna be harder to be a Christian in those environments. Because, and it'll come with baggage too, but if you publicly identify with Christ, people will expect you to live differently. And it will be harder to sin with or in the presence of people who you said, look, Jesus is my Lord, my faith is the most important part of my life and I'm trying to live for him and this work is part of my larger calling to be a Jesus follower. It's like, well, you just fought half the battle. And by the way, the longer you wait to tell somebody that, the harder it is. You know, If you're seven years into work and you've never told anyone you're a Christian, it will be a lot more difficult, but you still need to do it. Okay, let's continue on. Let's see what happens here. Verse 10. And she spoke to Joseph day after day. Okay, this is gonna be discouraging, but we need to know it anyway. Some temptations are never going away. I mean, when, when, you know, that'll be the joy of glorification, of being in the presence of the Lord, of being in heaven, that we will be in the sinless state and we will no longer be able to be tempted. But a lot of people think in their life, like, man, I'm gonna get to a place where this is not going to be a temptation anymore. And I do think we can grow and I think God's gracious and I think things might across time tempt us less if we've avoided them and grown in personal holiness and warned ourselves and created thankful hearts. But I just wanna tell you, um, the temptation to have, the temptation to feel, the temptation to be are never going to go away. Some of you need to hear this because you think, you know, when I get older, I won't be tempted with sexual temptation anymore. It's never going away. How do I know this? What's the number one age demographic that has the largest STDs? The elderly. I know you didn't want to know that. I didn't want to know that either. <laughs> You're like, Kyle, you, you ruined my weekend. Um, and I'm trying not to be too graphic here, but well, you think about what's, what's actually happening. What's happening is a bunch of 55 and older communities are being built because the boomers are very wealthy. They're retiring early and they have a lot of discretionary income. And so they move to places like the villages, Google that. I mean, the villages is the largest senior citizen housing in the world, I think. And it's a bunch of people who are unhappy and it's a bunch of divorcees and it's a bunch of singles. And so I'm trying to tell you, and particularly with that one area, you think, oh, it'll go away because old people, nope, old people do. Amen. <laughs> so, thank you. Oh. Amen. Um. Okay, an encur encouraging note. Okay, okay, all right. I don't have much more time, all right. Um, an encouraging note is we need to know the difference between temptation and sin. Temptation and sin. I, just real quick on this, and, and some, most of you probably know this, but what happens is temptation is not a sin. Jesus Christ was tempted. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis said Jesus Christ was tempted more than any of us because we say, no, we say yes to temptation, so we give in real easily. So we're never tempted to the max amount like Jesus was, okay? So Jesus was tempted to the max. There's a difference between temptation and sin. And some people, some of you do, because this is just in a room this large, of course, certain people have a more sensitive conscience and they feel like if I'm tempted, it's just as bad as if I did it. So I might as well, in some kind of weird logic, I might as well just give in and do it. You know, we, we have many brothers and sisters in Christ that struggle with SSA, that stands for same-sex attraction. And it's one thing to be tempted in a direction. That's temptation. It's another thing to cross the line into fantasy or to do something with your body. And so be encouraged that temptation is never going away, but temptation is not the same as sin, and you can say no to it. Look what happens here. Um, it says this. this. This is really important. Verse. This is another principle of fighting temptation. Verse 10, the second half. 
he would not listen to her. So that's the first thing he wouldn't do. He wouldn't listen to her. To lie beside her. I mean, could you imagine? I guess she says something. Well, we won't do anything, but why don't you come lay down with me? Yeah, sure, right. Or to be with her. So three different things. Um, I think here's the principle. It's easier to stay out of temptation than to get out of temptation. You know, I, I think most people don't jump into hell. They hang around the edges and then they fall in. And a lot of people think, I want to get as close to sin as possible without sinning. And, and here's something that I think is very true. When it comes to Christians, Christians can handle more suffering than they think, and they can handle less temptation than they think. So I want to encourage you. You can handle more suffering than you think. You watch somebody and you go, I don't know if I ever could. If I lost somebody, if I got cancer, I don't. It's like, no, by the grace of God, you could. You can actually... I've watched people, by the grace of God, people are much stronger than you think they are. And they can handle a lot more than they think they can. So the encouraging thing is, when it comes to suffering, you can actually handle more than you think. The warning is, when it comes to temptation, you can handle way less than you think. Um, and I know this doesn't work in every environment, and especially in the egalitarian society we live in today, but I think as a general rule, as much as you can spend time not alone with somebody who's not related to you and is of the opposite sex is good for you. This is what's called the Billy Graham rule. You know, where it's like Billy Graham, he was very famous, good looking guy, traveling the world. He and his close friends, they made four commitments. I won't go through them all, but one of the commitments that they made for the purity of their ministries was to never be alone in a room with a woman who's not their wife with the door closed. And that's also very important because we're gonna see at the end, nothing could happen, but you could be falsely accused, which is exactly what happened with Joseph. So it's easier to stay out of temptation than to get out of temptation, which means you need to have some type of guardrails in your life. You know, and sometimes they're extreme. Extreme measures is normal. When someone's like really deep in a sin, the first thing you do is extreme measures. You're like, all right, well, no internet at your house. Give me your smartphone, you know. Um, no alcohol in the house ever again. You know, you, you just go, but you have to figure out what, no traveling alone ever again. And you have to make those hard, they're called guardrails. It's just I have these guardrails in my life that don't ever put me in a place where I know I'm going to compromise because if I get under that much temptation, my passion overrides my will. And some of you, that's been the story of your life again and again and again, and you think you're gonna get stronger. Sometimes the strongest person, it knows where they're weak and doesn't go there. So we have to stay out of temptation because it's easier to stay out of temptation than to get out of temptation. Look, verse 39, but one day... When he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house. I wonder who organized that. Potiphar's wife, okay. She caught him by his garments, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he got out of the house. So this is when all else fails, you need to flee. That's the principle. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says to a young pastor named Timothy. He says, flee youthful lust. We're told to resist the devil. Like, you know, if, if, you, if you came home tonight and the devil was standing on your front porch, you just stand up to him, you quote scripture, you say, get out of here. If you come home tonight and your ex-girlfriend's on the porch, you run. <laughs> you run as far and as fast away from that as you possibly can. And so that, that's, you gotta put your Nikes on. You've gotta get out of there. You have to flee. I knew a guy and when he was tempted with sexual temptation, which would often happen at night when he was by himself, he, would, he, he made a commitment to himself. When this happens, I'm leaving my house and I'm gonna share the gospel with somebody. And it was both of those things, leaving the house and publicly identifying with Christ. You know, Martin Luther, that, that famous monk, he said when Satan would tempt him, he said, I would get rid of him with a fart. <laughs> he was like, he just, I'm going to go into his life and I'm going to insult him. And anyway, he's a goofy guy. But, but we have to, we have, don't fart, flee. That's the, that's the first one. Um, but he, he runs away. Now she has the garment, okay? Look here. She caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house, verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, he's always leaving his clothes somewhere, isn't he? He had fled out of the house. She called to the men of her house and said to them, see, she has, see, sorry, see, he has 
brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out to him with a loud voice. Verse 15. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and I cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. I've talked about this before, but this is, men and women both struggle with this, but this is classic reputation destruction. But, but a, a, a more interesting question to ask is, why would she turn on him so quickly? We don't know all the answers. Again, we're trying to sometimes read between the lines. It's probably two things. Number one, she really only viewed him as a sexual object. She didn't love him. She didn't want a life with him. She wanted a good time with him. But I think there's even a deeper thing here. I actually think that she viewed herself, which is a very a big struggle of women in our society today. She viewed herself only as a sexual object. And the most important thing to her is, am I desirable to men? And if I'm not, my life is not worth it and I'm not valuable. How many women struggle with this today? And they're telling on themselves with all their social media posts. You know, it's just like you look at it, you go, I don't know why you're posting that. You know, I don't know if you're willfully blind or not, but you're completely objectifying your own body in this post. And so Potiphar's wife gets to the place where I think she says something like, if I can't have him, nobody can. And this is also what happens when you idolize someone, when they go against you, then you demonize them. So she goes from idolizing to demonizing. And she's like, I mean, she's like I'm going to destroy this guy's life. So look what happens. <clears throat> Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in prison. So the question is, why is Potiphar angry? Well, first of all, rape or attempted rape in that culture was a capital offense where you would get the death penalty. And I mean, this guy's Potiphar, he's high up in the government. So he should have given Joseph the death penalty. Why didn't he give the Joseph the death penalty? Because I don't think he believed him. Or I don't think he believed her, I'm sorry, his wife. In other words, why is he angry? Because he has to live with his adulterous wife who he doesn't trust. And he had to get rid of his best worker in his life just got a lot more difficult. So look what happens here as it ends. But the Lord, I told you it's book ended here, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So now Joseph's doing prison ministry from the inside. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. So it sounds a lot like what happens at Potiphar's house. He rises again. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So a couple things, you know, this story ends and we'll pick it up next week. But uh, one of the things we learn about obedience or faithfulness is the rewards for faithfulness are enormous, but they're not immediate. And Joseph has had, he's been falsely accused and he's had his reputation destroyed, which this is an important principle I think that people need to learn, especially Christian leaders. You have to trust God for two things. You trust God for your salvation and then you trust God for your reputation. And Joseph lost his cloak, but he kept his character. And it's a hard ending to this story because what we see is we have Joseph suffering innocently for somebody else's sin. And I don't know, when you, whenever we read these stories, we tend to look and we tend to think, who am I in this story? And, and maybe there's some of Joseph in all of us, I hope so. Maybe there's some of Joseph in us and we're able to say no to temptation. We're able to say no to the adulterous woman. We're able to do it even, remember Joseph doesn't even have any accountability and he's able to do this, it's amazing. But most of us look over our lives and go, okay, I wish I was Joseph. I have not always been Joseph. I think we're two other people in the story. When you read this story, I want you to think I am Potiphar who Jesus, the greater Joseph, came into my life to serve me and, to, and my whole house is blessed because of Jesus. But I want you to think even more, like maybe you never had this thought before. You read this story, I want you to think, you know who we are? We are Potiphar's wife. Because what is Potiphar's wife doing? She's uh, guilty of sin and trying to blame someone else. And how does the story end? It ends with Joseph 
let's just say now think of Jesus, the greater Joseph, but it ends with Joseph, an innocent man suffering for someone else's sin. If, if you're new to Christianity or new to our church, I want you to know that that's the actual very center of the gospel and it's actually the hope of every Christian. The hope of every Christian is that Jesus Christ is the innocent, sinless man who said no to temptation and then willingly suffered for your sin and mine. And, and I need to say this as well. I didn't talk about this a lot today, but obviously in a room this size, there are some of you who have given in to temptation and, and you're filled with regret. And the Bible says there is grace and there is forgiveness and there is restoration because of what God has done. We really want our church to be a church where people's lives can fall apart. We don't want your life to fall apart. We wanna be the kind of environment that's like, this is a church where your life can fall apart. And if someone's life fell apart and they just came to our church for the first time, we're not gonna say, I told you so, ha ha. We're gonna say, we're gonna help you. This is gonna be a place of hope. This is gonna be a place of help. This is gonna be a place of healing. I wanna warn us though, as we close, that Satan is patient. So if you've got to deal with something, I want you to deal with it. I don't want you to think I'm getting away with something because he's just waiting for you to be second in command so he can bring a greater reproach on the name of Christ. The second thing I want to tell you as we close is we look at Joseph's life. And I want to, because you're not going to hear this anywhere else, I want you to know that purity is possible. We see it in the life of Joseph. A young man in his sexual prime, all alone, with lots of temptation, and he's able to say no. But the only way that we can take the next step in any of this is we need to create the type of culture with just a few people where we can talk about our temptations and get the help and accountability that we need. Let's pray. Lord, I just, we've talked about a lot today. We, we know temptation's coming. And it's why there is the prayer in the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, Lord. Lord, would you give us the strength to be grateful? Would you give us the strength to count the downside? But I wanna give us a moment right here. If there's anyone in this room and they just, in their heart, they just need to confess, this is a temptation I'm struggling with. This is a lie I'm believing. Maybe there's a few in the room and you just need to commit in your heart right now, what is the next step you're gonna do? And I think one of the next steps for most people is they need to have one person in their life, just one, where they can talk about their temptations, Lord. Would you protect us? Would you protect us at work, Lord? We want work to be a place of worship and witness, Lord, not a place of sin and temptation. We thank you for Jesus. He's our great hope. Our great hope is not that we say no to temptation. Our great hope is that Jesus Christ said no to every temptation and his sinless life is our righteousness. We ask this in his name, amen.